Chapter Seventeen of Pioneer Work in the Alps of New Zealand by Arthur Paul Harper. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Gail Timmerman Vaughan. Chapter Seventeen: A Pass to the Hermitage. Instructions to go to the Hermitage. Forestalled. Meet Fitzgerald and Zurbriggen at last. Saltwater Creek. Pass to Tasman Glacier. A memorable meeting at the Hermitage. Solitary journey back to Copeland River. West Coast work discussed. Complete the exploration of Copeland River. Returning from the hill to Scott's farm, I spent a few more days completing my map before sending it to headquarters, intending to start in a few days to inspect the range west of the footstool, with a view to taking a direct track to the Hermitage. This, as I have already stated, was the line I, and one or two others, had for some time past held to be the only likely route. It was direct and possessed grand scenery but the government had required a route which should be, quote, free of snow and ice for three months every year, end quote, and therefore this was not acceptable. However, now that Douglas and I had proved, what many of us have known for years, that no such pass as required existed without going an unreasonable distance to the south, they at last made the best of a bad job and decided to inspect the Copeland again, Douglas having already reported on it in 1892. The evening before I was to leave Scott's house for the Hermitage, Dick, who had been at the camp, arrived with two strangers, whom I at once recognized as Fitzgerald and Zurbriggen. They had just come over from the Hermitage, by the very pass I was going to cross, and had forestalled me in the passage by a few days. However, I was glad they had come, and congratulated them on finding the pass, for though we have known of its existence, no one had crossed it. Note. See Appendix. Note 5. End of note. They seemed to have considered the river a very bad one to descend. This opinion of the character of the travelling is rather useful by way of comparison, because Douglas and I look on the Copeland River as an easy one, for the west coast, to descend, if taken the right way, and it fully bears out what I have already stated, namely, that what we call fair travelling is, to those unaccustomed to the work, really very bad. Fitzgerald said he made use of five languages to properly express his opinion of the rough going. I therefore calculate that he would have had to use at least ten if he had come down some of the other rivers, or else kept silence. It can well be imagined what a treat it was to spend a day or two with Fitzgerald, who was elected member of the Alpine Club on the same day as I was, and knew many of my friends in England. We had a long talk about Switzerland, England, and affairs in general. I was also anxious to have a talk with him about the good work he and his guide had been doing in New Zealand this season, and was pleased to hear that his enterprise had met with such well-deserved success. They had intended to go back by the Franz Joseph Glacier, but I dissuaded them, for I felt sure that so late in the year it would be impassable. Also, it would take two days to reach it. After some discussion, I suggested the route I had planned last year while on the Fox Glacier as an interesting one, namely over the Bismarck Range to the Franz Joseph Neve, and thence over Graham's saddle to the Tasman. Fitzgerald kindly pressed me to be his guest, and return with him, an invitation I most gladly accepted, chiefly for the pleasure of a week with them, and partly because it enabled me to share the first transinsular pass via Graham's saddle. I had a desire to cross this, for I had already been within an hour of it from both east and west, the actual pass having been left unfinished in the latter case, when easily in our reach, for reasons stated in Chapter 11. Sending Dick, therefore, up the Copeland River to Welcome Flats, 
some eight miles above its junction with the Karangarua, with a light camp and four week stores, I left Scott's for the Fox Glacier, with Fitzgerald and Zurbriggen. My plan was to cross with them to the Tasman, perhaps ascend Mount Cook, and then return alone via the pass they came by, which I named Fitzgerald's Pass, to the Copeland River, joining Dick, who was to meet me at Welcome Flat in a fortnight with all the stores. We rode to Gillespie's Beach, crossing the Saltwater Creek and Cook River Ferry, and thence went up to Ryan's lower hut on Cook River, situated two miles nearer the sea than the hut which Douglas and I had made our base of operations the previous summer. There was no trouble in crossing the salt water, luckily, as the tide was out. This creek is one of the most dangerous to ford on the coast. It has since been bridged above the lagoon. Like most other streams, its course is, at times, blocked by a bar of gravel thrown up by the sea, and is easily crossable, but it generally runs out amongst large stones and very deep, giving considerable trouble. The Maoris call it Ohinutamatia. This was the name of a woman who, according to the legend, was going with her two sons up on the outer range of hills for some purpose, when she fell ill and died on the grassy alp above the bush line. The two sons, being unable to bury her, made a heap of dry grass and burned her where she died. They then went over a ridge, following some tuis, which flew in front and guided them to a splendid valley full of wekas, where they lived in plenty for some time. On returning by the route they had gone, they discovered a spring of water rising on the spot where their mother had been burnt, and flowing down to the low country, formed the creek named Ohinu Tamatia, or sometimes spelt Owinitamatia. It is possible that these two natives crossed a spur of Ryan's Peak, and dropping into the Copeland River, reached Welcome Flats, for the Saltwater Creek flows from near this peak. As we had some thirty pounds each to carry, Fitzgerald brought Dan Coiti to carry his load, and we all rode up to a point a mile below the terminal face of the Fox Glacier, arriving there in somewhat heavy rain, and I was able to amuse my host and Sorbrigan by a little bit of bushcraft. We had no tent, and when it began to rain they were for returning to the hut, which would waste a day, but I showed them how to build a mai-mai, or shelter of ferns and bark, like those I generally use, in which, with the help of a piece of mackintosh and a blanket, we spent two wet nights in perfect comfort. On Sunday, March 3rd, we reached the Chancellor Ridge, following my route of last year, and chose a stone at the lower end under which to camp. It was raining most of the evening, and snow set in at sundown, but we had a good though small shelter. Luckily, however, there was plenty of scrub, which burns, green or dry, and I was able to boil the billy I had brought in my load, and we had a good hot brew of cocoa before we turned in. Douglas had given us a blanket, and I brought two of my own, which allowed us one apiece, and right glad we were of their warmth, when the sky cleared and a frost set in. About 2.30 a.m. we got up and kindled a fire, which enabled us to have two hot drinks of cocoa before starting. I was amused at Zurbriggen, because he did not know whether to praise the steaming cocoa or blame the delay caused by letting it cool. I suppose guides are always a little hard to please. Dan, by the way, had only brought up his load to the foot of the Chancellor Ridge, and then Fitzgerald sent him back to take the horses back to Scott's on the previous evening. As I had to return down the Copeland River and might be stuck by the floods, I carried one of my blankets over the pass with us. The others we left at the bivouac with the billy and half a flask of whiskey. They are still there. Leaving the sleeping place about four o'clock in the morning, we went up the Victoria Glacier, towards the saddle into the Fritz Glacier, which I had found on the previous year, and on reaching the foot of the rise we roped. 
the ascent to the col gave no trouble and from there zurbriggen who still rather underrated the broken nature of our glaciers led us up the middle of the fritz neve we soon found the bergschrunds too bad and had to return and ascend a ridge which bounded the victoria glacier from this we crossed the top of the fritz and reaching a col leading into the head of the blumenthal a tributary of the franz joseph glacier this saddle we named after Zurbriggen. from here we could see the great neve of the latter glacier and in front of us the spurs of the bismarck range stood out separating the melchior and agassiz glaciers also tributaries of the franz joseph behind us the waikukupa river which drains the fritz ice was visible to the sea it has no special features about it being merely a straight narrow valley which would probably be a difficult one to ascend below on the left the fearfully broken ice of the franz joseph gave sorbriggen something to examine through the glasses he acknowledged that it looked impassable but would not commit himself from that height on our right Tasman's mighty shoulders and vast brown cliffs rose in all their glory from the Fox Neve, and to the south we could see over the country which Douglas and I had explored in 1894. Leaving the call after a short spell, we rounded the head of the Blumenthal Glacier and reached the spur dividing it from the Melchior. This had appeared to present no difficulty when I passed under it in September 1894, but now we found some little trouble in descending to the glacier below no doubt the shortest way would have been round the base of the spur which ended in a steep face of rock but i had strongly opposed that route as the lower ice of the melchior is always very broken so Brigan, however soon found a feasible route down the rocks and we descended to the melchior glacier everything was in our favour clear day hard snow and easy walking so it was fairly early when we reached the point to turn up to graham's saddle had the snow been in the good order it was now when i was on the neve in september we should have been on graham's saddle in less than half an hour from where we had turned back unfortunately we now made the mistake of spending an hour here melting some snow over a candle for we were rather thirsty so it was well after five p m when we mounted the ridge and overlooked the tasman glacier what a glorious panorama of ice can be seen from here i have twice before in eighteen ninety one seen the same view when on de la beche and should never tire of seeing it again the fog over the low country prevented a clear view westwards but the tasman could be seen sweeping down mile after mile to the terminal face nearly fourteen miles away drawing its supplies from innumerable ice-falls and glaciers off the main range de la beche rose one thousand feet above us on the left and the rudolph glacier flowed away from the saddle on which we were to join the tasman four thousand feet below time however was precious if we intended to reach the ball hut that night so we could not delay on the pass hitherto i had been last on the rope but knowing this slope of de la beche only too well we swung round and i took the lead travelling as fast as the very hard snow would allow down to and across the neve of the rudolph glacier a short ascent of two hundred feet was here necessary up a slope rather open to falling stones but previous experience had showed me it was the only way so we scrambled up the snow to some rocks down which the descent was easy here we unroped and after a short traverse to the left got into an open couloir and hurried down to some steeper rocks below how different from the last occasions i had gone over these same rocks and snow slopes then i had twice a sick companion and once a terrific storm now we had a clear still evening and were all as fit as the proverbial fiddles 
On nearing the bottom we found the rocks coated with ice, as it rapidly became dark. My poor old boots were not up to such slippery work at any speed. Therefore, before we knew where we were, it was dark, and we had to sit down on a ledge, five feet by two, and wait for dawn. Zurbriggen and I took the outside, so were unable to sleep, but Fitzgerald towards midnight had a little quiet, though uncomfortable dozing, as he sat between us with his knees under his chin. My two companions had dry socks and boots, but I had nothing, so put my feet into Zurbriggen's spare gloves and rucksack. We managed to make the latter angry during the night, and it took an hour to calm him down. They then tried to put my back up, so as to pass the time, but being prepared for it, I did not lose my temper. However, we spent another hour over the futile attempt. At midnight we sang some songs, ending up with the most appropriate one we could find, namely, we won't go home till morning. It was now rather cold, and my thermometer had fallen to twenty-five degrees Fahrenheit, which I endeavoured to explain to Zerbriggen was the cause of the cold. However, he seemed to have some settled notion in his head that the weather and temperature affected the instruments, and all my eloquence could not convince him that in New Zealand the instruments affected the weather. This occupied another hour, and then the cold was becoming troublesome, so I unpicked my blanket bag, which we had over our knees, and opened it to the full size of the blanket. This we put over our heads, and tucked down behind us, making a rough tent. Each taking a candle, we held it between our feet, and produced quite a warm current of air. It was very amusing to watch Fitzgerald. He would hold his candle and drop off to sleep. In a short time the candle would burn down, and wake him up with a start, as it scorched his fingers. Muttering some foreign lingo, he would lower his hand another two inches, and again doze off, with the same result. At last, the light of dawn appeared on the top of Cook, and we slowly untied ourselves from the various knots and twists, which invariably result from a long night on a small ledge. Nothing will persuade any of us that the sun did not for once in his life oversleep himself and rise an hour or two late. My boots were too hard frozen to put on, so I cut them open and made sandals of them, trusting that Adamson, at the Hermitage, would have an old pair to give me for my return to the west coast. Three hours' easy walking took us to the ball hut, where we had breakfast and waited for Adamson, who was to meet Fitzgerald there by previous arrangement. About midday he arrived, and I returned with him in the evening to the Hermitage, where I spent the night, and obtaining from him two old boots, went back to the hut with a heavy load of provisions. For four days we stayed in that hut, waiting for a good day to ascend Cook, but it rained one day and snowed the next. Then Fitzgerald decided to give it up and go down to the Hermitage. I could not help contrasting the comfort of this hut and the convenience of the track with our difficulties in the past years. Yet from the way my two friends expressed themselves, I suppose it must even now be considered more than ordinarily rough. I know that, as compared with Zermatt and Grundewald, it is very uncivilized work, even at the Hermitage. But is not the luxury at those two places rather too great? The pleasantest surprise of the whole trip awaited me at the Hermitage. When coming up to the hotel, I saw a visitor coming from the house, and said to Fitzgerald, Why, that must be Tuckett but he's not out here. However, on getting nearer, I found that it was Mr. F. F. Tuckett, with whom I had spent some pleasant days in England, in 1892. It appears he had come up for two days to the Hermitage, and having heard I was on the west coast, never expected to see me, but curiously enough we both arrived on the same day. Nothing could have given me greater pleasure, and having introduced Fitzgerald to him, 
we three members of the alpine club sat down with a swiss guide in the smoking-room of the little hermitage and were soon over the seas to the other side of the world it was a memorable occasion for me at any rate and the second pleasant ray of sunshine on my uncivilized life in the ranges but it only lasted for one night as he left for christchurch next morning with fitzgerald driving his buggy to fairly creek where the road meets the railway zurbriggen and i spent the twelfth in going for a short walk up the hooker glacier and he showed me the whole of his and fitzgerald's fine climb up sefton the evening was chiefly spent in discussing mount cook for zurbriggen was bent on the ascent and i was anxious to accompany him however duty before pleasure is an universal rule and i felt that my absence had already been too long and that if i did not return at once dick might go down to scott's and raise an alarm justified by my non-appearance for no one had ever crossed the range alone as i proposed to do now sir bruggen's very enticing proposal had therefore to be refused on the thirteenth i left the hermitage alone for the west coast taking a loaf of bread a bill-hook and blanket the same moment the sir bruggen left with adamson for green's bivouac namely at six a m the route lay up the hooker glacier for a mile or two and then i crossed and took a spur about a mile further west than fitzgerald and sir bruggen ascended when they crossed after some interesting climbing along a broken arete i reached a small ice-field which was steep and covered with fresh snow it took me forty-five minutes to traverse an awkward bergschrung having to be crossed before i reached the topmost rocks of the range at one p m i topped the divide at a point about a mile west of fitzgerald's saddle and dropping down an ice-filled couloir on the copeland side i traversed round to inspect the pass leaving there at two p m i descended through the clouds to the valley of the marchant glacier and douglas river though my route was to this point different to fitzgerald's and sir Brigand's, it presented as far as i can gather about the same amount of difficulty excepting the fresh snow on the rocks and ice which i found and the disadvantage naturally consequent on a man travelling alone the two journeys however afford such good examples of the wrong and right mode of descending a west coast river that i venture to quote the times taken on each occasion and to describe shortly the best way of attacking this country in hopes that i may be of service to climbers making a similar expedition in future these rivers must be attacked by others than douglas and myself so it is as well that the best mode of procedure should be known for the work is unlike anything found in switzerland or on the eastern side of our alps fitzgerald and zurbriggen told me that they had left the hermitage at five a m an earlier hour than i did and bivouacked later on the second day again started earlier and at four thirty p m reached welcome flats and on the third day they made my camp below the junction of copeland and karangarua about six p m reaching scott's house after nine p m that evening i left the hermitage as stated one hour later than they did and travelled half an hour less but managed to bivouac half a mile lower down the river on the first day than they and on the second though starting half an hour later arrived at welcome flats by eight forty five a m instead of four thirty p m or ten hours in advance of their time at this point judging by our trip down from here to scott's three weeks later i could have reached his house by ten p m on the second evening that is in two days instead of three from the hermitage the reason of their longer times is to be found after reaching the grass line on the copeland for up to this point they were ahead of me 
the natural result when two men are together above the snow line on arriving at the grass they descended straight down to the river and began to clamber over the great boulders here and there meeting one which compelled them to go into the scrub the scrub in this valley is not bad for the west coast that is to say worse is to be found elsewhere here they would meet the usual tangle of stiff unbreakable and stunted vegetation which would alone account for the use of the five languages they found necessary in a short time they would again take to the river-bed and have more hoisting on one another's shoulders crawling under stones and sliding down slippery boulders followed by another deviation into scrub and so on ad libitum for let us say three or four miles this would be succeeded by open travelling and long stretches of still more boulders involving feats which would to quote fitzgerald turn a gymnast's climber's hair grey considering that they took these difficulties on a face as the diggers say the times made by those two were good but the pity of it is that it was all a waste of energy owing to their having no means of ascertaining how to tackle this country it is to prevent such a waste of time in the future that i am contrasting our experiences on reaching the grass the first thing to do was to have a good look at the valley it was evident that there was no spur or ridge to follow above the scrub but it was also evident that on reaching the second large creek flowing down on the left i could go up it for some two hundred feet and reaching a piece of open grass could skirt the scrub till another large open creek was reached thus avoiding an evil-looking part of the river which to a west coaster's eye meant mischief the result was some fairly rough and tumble work in the river a stiff but short ascent up an open creek bed and good travelling for a short distance to the next open creek from which a view could be obtained round a bend in the river there was however nothing to be done here but descend and follow the river for nearly a mile yet the time saved by the above deviation was probably more than two hours than one from here i had to follow the same tactics as they pursued and made the best of a bad job until the inflow of the Strontian river half a mile below my bivouac was reached here it was at once evident that as the bush was composed of large rata trees it would afford fairly open going therefore by ascending one hundred feet from the river and traversing along the hillside i avoided endless work amongst large stones and reached welcome flats in ten hours shorter time than they did below the flats the same course has to be pursued namely go back from the river because the valley is here for a short distance as bad as cook river for large boulders the copland is not as i have already said a bad river to descend for there is no bluff necessitating a high climb like that described on the landsborough and cook rivers nor is there a bad gorge like the karangarua and calorie rivers none of those rivers can be descended without high climbs i do not think the route i took down the copland would account altogether for the shorter time it was probably due to some extent to my being generally more accustomed to rough work than fitzgerald and surbriggan but the method would be answerable for at least two-thirds of the difference in time on arriving at welcome flat i saw some footmarks which showed me that dick had been there and a little bit of tracking along the gravel soon discovered the camp dick arrived in the evening having been down for the last load of provisions which he had left at a rock where he slept on his way up i now had to traverse the douglas river from the forks of the copeland to the marchant glacier as douglas had not followed it to the head in eighteen ninety two because it was evident that no pass absolutely free of snow existed there thinking it possible that some party might come over the pass during the following summer 
we spent some days blazing narrow tracks through the scrub, wherever the river compelled one to leave the open. These were marked, most plainly, with cross sticks. Note. Owing to my report that a track via this pass would be most expensive, I fear there is no immediate prospect of the government undertaking its formation. A considerable portion of such a track would have to be built up with solid masonry, as the rock is very rotten. End of note. It was the 29th of March, before we explored the Marchant Glacier, as there had been some very stormy and cold weather. A biting wind blew, and the thermometer never rose above 50 degrees Fahrenheit, and was constantly below 32 degrees, a low temperature for us, in our tattered and drafty clothes. The Copeland River has two main branches, the Douglas on the south, from the Marchant Glacier, and the main branch from the north, draining the Strongen Glacier. Douglas had visited the latter glacier in 1892, and as I wanted some photographs of it, we returned and camped on the 31st, half a mile below the forks. Here we sparred the river in order to get to the northern bank. This operation is generally fairly easy, but here it gave us considerable trouble. We found two large stones ten feet apart, between which the whole river had to pass, and hoisted a fifteen-foot spar of totra onto the top of one of them, intending to launch it over the gap. This, however, was difficult, for the stone we were on was narrow, and did not allow room to manipulate so large a piece of timber comfortably. Accordingly, we went two hundred yards down the river, to a place where a boulder of thirty feet in height overhung the river, and nearly met the branches of a tree on the opposite bank. After some slippery barefooted work, we got on to the top of this stone, and a gap of a few feet separated us from the branches, the river boiling and foaming past, thirty feet below. Dick went back down the stone, on the side away from the river, and there he secured himself, with the rope ready in case I fell, and I, with rope round my waist, made a spring of a few feet onto the branches of the tree, and succeeded in reaching the opposite shore safely. We then adjourned to our spar, and with a rope and man at each end, launched it with ease, and were able to cross in comfort. Having agreed to bar fooling in camp, as my diary says, we went up the Strontium Glacier on All Fool's Day, but had bad luck with the fog, which only gave us isolated glimpses of the views of Cook and Stokes to the north, and Sefton to the east. After waiting three or four hours for the clouds to lift, we gave it up and returned to camp. On the second and third we journeyed down the river, completing some observations, and repitched our camp below the junction of the Copeland and Karangarua rivers, at the point where Dick had blazed a track up the spur of Ryan's Peak, which I had to ascend before returning to civilization. End of chapter 17